Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. So last week, we started a series to the Gospel of John that we are calling Come and See, which is a, an invitation that Jesus gives us to merge our lives with him, and as we do, to come and see who he is and what he is all about. And so uh, we're going on that journey, and as we go on that journey, the hope is that John expressly says at the end of his book that I wrote these things that you may know who he is, and in knowing who he is, have life, that you would receive life from Jesus. And may it be so this semester that we would receive life as we follow Jesus. Well, uh, the first half of the book of John is often called, in theological circles, the, the book of signs. And the reason why it's called the book of signs is because in the first half of the book, there are seven signs. Everybody say seven signs, seven signs. Okay, I don't know why I had to say that, but you did. Okay, so good job. And some of you even used your fingers. That was great. Thanks. Thanks, Ian. Um, anyways, uh, there's seven signs, and these seven signs are not called miracles in John. In fact, he rarely calls something a miracle. He calls it a sign. And the reason is, it's not just a miracle. It is a sign that the miracle points to something greater than the miracle itself, has significance greater than the miracle itself, okay? And that significance is to tell us something about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Signs. Well, uh, several years ago, well, let me say it this way at first. Have you ever been reading, and as you read, came to a word that you just could not figure out. And you know you should be able to figure it out, but you're just like, I have no idea what that word. Anybody ever had that experience? I've had this experience a couple times, and I'm getting ready to tell you about one. Okay. So several years ago, I was reading a child's book to my uh, oldest son, who at this point was a a young child, and it was a a theological work you may have heard of. Um, It was called Baby Natasha Says and Say Cheese. (laughs) And so that was the book that I was reading. You're like, okay, you hit a word you couldn't understand and baby Natasha and say, cheese, a Sesame Street book. Okay, so I'm sitting on the couch and I'm reading baby Natasha and say, cheese. And, I, and my wife is setting the table, getting ready for dinner and she's overhearing and she's read this book many times. This is my first time reading this book. And I come to this word and I'm just like, I have no idea. So I, so Amy's listening to me reading, all of a sudden I just stop. Okay, and uh, here's the, the word that I came to. <laughs> and I am looking at this word, and I go, C-I-A-O. <laughs> and, my, and my wife goes, chow. And, you know, is laughing hysterically um, in the other room, because she knew exactly what I was trying... I'm like, why do I need to know a foreign language to read a Sesame Street book to my five-and-a-half-year-old son? This is, I mean, come on. I'm sorry, I didn't grow up learning Italian in Southern Illinois. That wasn't an option. And so I say, C-I-A-O. My point is sometimes you see things and you really see them, but you miss the point altogether. 
And if I'm going to be really honest with you tonight, for much of my Christian life, or at least a long time in my Christian life, the story that we're going to look at tonight, I was looking at and saying, CIAO. Like I was seeing it, but I wasn't seeing it. I wasn't getting it. I wasn't understanding the importance and the value and the significance. I was missing the glory of the story we're going to read, okay? Just to to be frank with you, it was quite peculiar to me. In fact, tonight at, at dinner, my three kids, um, what my oldest said, so what are you going to be speaking on tonight, dad? And I told him what I'm going to be speaking on. And my daughter, who's in middle school, is like, yeah, that's kind of a strange passage to me. And I'm like, I know. But I will, I'll be honest with you, as I have studied this, as I've dove into the significance of this, of this story, it has changed from something peculiar to something actually quite profound. And here's one of the problems for me with this, uh, with this story that's always kind of bothered me. It's, it's the first sign that Jesus does. So it has this like place of preeminence. And I'm thinking if I was going to have a, 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 a first sign to show people who I am and what I'm about, I'm not sure it would have been that. I'm not for sure this is how I would have kicked things off. And so it's, it's been a little, had a little tension for me. In fact, the word that says it's the first sign is, is actually a word that is arche and, and is where we get the word archetype. In other words, like everything else you're going to see Jesus do, he's just going to do like more of this. This is like the archetype sign to tell us who he is and what he came to do. And so as I've studied this, Like I said, it's gone from peculiar to actually quite profound, and I hope tonight it will be profound for you as well. Are you guys ready? Okay, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is the fourth Gospel. Turn to chapter 2, and we're just going to read 11 verses tonight. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. Here's how the story starts. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, stop there for just a second. For us to understand this story, there's a few things you need to understand about weddings in that day. First of all, in in our culture, I go to a lot of weddings. I've been in campus ministry for 20 years. I've gone to a lot of weddings. I will go to some of your weddings, okay? I mean, I I may even perform some of you. I don't know. I don't know. That's going to be up to you. But anyways, (laughs) but here's the deal. Been to a lot of weddings, and in an American wedding, here's what you do: you you know maybe the wedding's at two o'clock. If it's at two o'clock, you you know leave a little early, get there. You don't want for those of you you weddings actually do start on time, so you want to get there early. Okay, so you get there early, and then you go through the ceremony, the reception, and you're probably home by ten or eleven if it starts at two. Okay, so it's like maybe an eight-hour window. In the ancient Near East and Jesus' day, that is not how wedding celebrations were. Wedding celebrations were actually seven-day-long epic celebrations. Okay, seven days. Yes, people would take a week off work if they came for the whole thing. Some people would come for part of it. You know, a few days of it. Other people would come for the the whole seven days. And here's what would happen. 
you would invite as many people as you could possibly afford to invite, okay? So in that day, it may have been your entire village. So the village shuts down because you're getting married, right? And so you invite the entire village. If you are, have enough means, you may actually invite the neighboring village, which this may have been the case because Jesus is from Nazareth, just a, a stone's throw, throw away from, from Cana, but he has been invited to this wedding. And so he is at this this wedding. And here's what you need to understand. If it goes well, it will always um, shine well on your family that you, through a, an epic wedding celebration, bring great honor to your family. But if it does not, it would be the opposite. Okay, so let me explain to you who is responsible for the provisions for this wedding. Actually, in this day, ladies, it was the groom's responsibility it wasn't the bride's family responsibility. I don't know where that came from. You guys probably do. I don't. But back in the day, it was the groom's responsibility to make provisions for the wedding. Okay, so here is the problem. You do not even want to come close to running out of provisions of food and beverages for those seven days. You wouldn't want to even come close. And here's the reason why. Because if you invited people to your wedding and you did not make proper provisions to receive them well, scholars say that they, could, they would call you a thief because you invited them and then did not receive them appropriately. In fact, your in-laws could sue you for the, for the, um, the cost to the family name because the whole community was there and they were shamed by your lack of of provision. It was a huge social stigma if you ran out of provisions in that day. And so you can imagine how consequential, how significant it was in this moment when Jesus's mom comes up to him and says, there is no more wine. The family's reputation and honor and legacy is on the line. And it would cause deep shame if they ran out. Okay, so let's see what happens. Verse 4, Jesus says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. Now you're thinking, wait a second, did he just call his mom woman? <laughs> yes, he did. Okay, but, <laughs> but here's what you need to understand. Like, it wasn't as derogatory as it sounds. It may, it may be like saying today, ma'am. Okay, it was respectful, it was tender, it was kind. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, he's going to look at his mom and say, woman, the exact same word, behold your son, and, and to John, your mom. And so he, as he's take care, taking care of her, it's like saying ma'am. Okay, so it's respectful, but there is something going on. He's saying that I, there's some, a shift happening that I don't take orders directly from you anymore, but I have a heavenly father and his timeline is what is most important. So he's creating a little independence from her. And then it says this, and his mom said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> okay. Um, then it says this, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Okay, um, let me give you a picture of what those jars would look like. This is a picture I took 20 years ago when I was in Jerusalem at a, at a uh, 
at a museum there, and, and th- this is what it would have looked like, and I was thinking, man, those things would have been heavy, because I was carrying a Gatorade container about that big full of water last week, and I was like glad when it was over. Okay, so these are stone, all right, and he tells them, take these stone jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons each, and some of you uh, who, who, you know, know how much a gallon of water weighs, you can, you know, this is heavy. Okay, so he says, fill these to the brim. They go and get the jars, and they do what Jesus said, and here's the thing. I am positive. I am positive in the midst of this. They did not know what Jesus was up to. They didn't know that Jesus was about ready to turn water into wine. They were just doing what they were told, which is a big lesson to all of us. Sometimes you just have to obey and you don't understand. You don't know what Jesus is up to. Okay, so they go and and, uh, get the water and it says this in verse eight. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Okay, let me give you the the translation of that. This was superb wine. He's like, whoa, where did this come from? And when Jesus, or what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, was the first of the signs, was the ark of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so what John says is, and when the disciples saw this, they said one word, glory, glory. And they believed in him. They put their trust, their budding faith deepened and broadened and, and grew in him. And so the question is, why did they say glory whenever he turned water into wine? Why did they respond that way? And then how is this paradigmatic of the entire ministry of Jesus, of who he is and what he came to do? I'm so glad you asked. Because those are the two questions that I hope to answer in the next few minutes. For us to understand the glory of this, we need to understand what was going on in the Old Testament and understand how wine was spoken of in the Old Testament. So let me take you on a quick tour of the Old Testament, how the prophets spoke about wine and how wine had become a symbol. First of all, the prophet Joel, I'll put him up here. The prophet Joel speaks of the day of the Lord and the the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is this day that was looked forward to as the day when God would restore his people and bring salvation. And here's how it is described. It says this, that in that day, when the day of the Lord comes, the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. And then in Amos, Amos is talking about when God's kingdom will be established on earth among his people and and when salvation will come and restoration will come and justice will prevail. And, And Amos says it this way, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And then in Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of how one day God is going to make everything new. And listen to how Isaiah speaks of this. He says, and on the mountain of the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And then it says this in verse eight, he will swallow up death forever. 
the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And so throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would talk about when salvation would come, when restoration would come, when redemption would come, when renewal would come. And they said that the hills will flow with new wine and Jesus inaugurates his ministry by turning water into wine. And we beheld his glory. So when you see Jesus show up on the scene and the first sign, the first miracle he does is turn water into wine. Jesus is saying the day of new wine is here. The arrival of the kingdom of God has come in me. The day of restoration is here. The day of renewal is here. The day of, of making all things new is starting as, it, as I start my ministry. And water is turned to wine and new wine begins to flow. So when somebody who is dead in their sins experiences new life in Christ and are restored to, uh, and reconciled to their heavenly father, new wine begins to flow. And when somebody is bound in sin and addiction and they are set free from the power of sin in their life, new wine begins to flow. And when somebody is brokenhearted and God graciously comes and and heals their broken heart and lifts their head, new wine begins to flow. And when somebody is, is full of insecurity and their value is affirmed and they're given a new identity in Christ, as Kayla talked about, new wine begins to flow in their lives. This summer, I was reading an email um, by a, a ministry called Teen Challenge, and Teen Challenge works with addicts, and this specific one works with, uh, with moms who are addicts, and, and it was a, there was a testimony in it, and the, and the mom wrote this, my newfound life in Christ has allowed me to give birth to a healthy baby girl and to reunite me with my other children And I'm breaking the cycle of addiction and my identity is in Christ. And when I sat there and I read that testimony, I just thought new wine is flowing. And so wine is an Old Testament prophetic symbol of salvation and blessing and restoration and redemption. And Jesus shows up on the scene at his first sign as he turns water into wine. It's interesting to me that in verse 1, what day does it tell you this happened on? What day does this happen on? John says, the third day. I have another question for you. What else in the scriptures, in the gospel of John itself, happens on the third day? He rose from the dead. What is John doing? John is telling you what you're going to see Jesus do on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection is he's going to be turning some water into wine. New wine is going to flow by what Jesus is going to do. In fact... When Jesus replies to his mother, he says this, my hour has not yet come. What is Jesus talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because in the Gospel of John, 
The hour always speaks of something very specific. Let's, let's take a, a quick look. It says this, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come in John 7. And then in John 8, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then in John 12, there's a switch in the entirety of the book and it says this, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. The hour was speaking of the cross. So I want you to get this for a second. Here is Jesus at a wedding where the groom's provisions are insufficient. And they come up to him and say, hey, the groom is out of wine. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking about how he will make provisions for the ultimate, how he will pay the price for us to be able to come into covenant with him, right? And he says, my hour to pay the price, to pick up the bill so you and I could be in covenant with our heavenly father has not yet come. And then the ceremonial jars that are used for ritual cleansing. Why does he use those? He says, fill them up because their days are over. They were there to remind you that you are a sinner who needs to be cleansed. But he's saying in me, I'm the one who's gonna bring the cleansing. You don't need those anymore. I'm gonna pay the price. I'm gonna make provision to, for you to come into relationship with me. I'm going to cleanse you through the new life of the Holy Spirit. This is Christianity. Folks, Christianity isn't about you climbing the ladder up to God. It's about a God who comes down the ladder to you, who pays the price so you could enter into a covenant with him, who then cleanses you with the new life of the Holy Spirit, who redeems you and restores you and makes you new. That is what following Jesus is about. Isn't that good news? That's good news. In this story, if I could sum it up in a nutshell, here's how I'd sum it up. That Jesus comes to this man's place of greatest shame and turns it into a place of celebration. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that groom could ever think about having ran out of wine and not thought about what Jesus did? How Jesus saved his skin. I mean, seriously, do you think he could have ever, come on now, somebody help me. Do you think he could have? No. I mean, as soon as somebody talked about running out of wine, you know what happened next, right? But do you remember what Jesus did? Man, he was a man. He, you know, and they'd tell the story of how he turned water into wine. And they would celebrate what they saw Jesus do in that place that was the place of greatest shame in his life. Can I say that the same is true for you and for me? That Jesus comes to the place of the greatest shame of our lives and wants to turn it into a place of celebration. He wants to go to that place, that place that um, haunts you, that place that you've tried to keep in the dark, that when you think about it makes you cringe on the inside. He wants to go to that place And so redefine it by his grace and mercy and power and restoration 
that when you think of that place, it no longer is a place of shame, but it is a place of celebration of God's goodness and grace in your life. Can't tell you how many times I've sat with people who are haunted by things that have happened in their lives, things that they've done. And I'll go to the story and I'll ask that question. Let me ask you a question. Do you think he could come to that place, think about that place without thinking about what Jesus did? Then I would propose that as you have brought it to Jesus, that you can be in that same place as well, that now it can now be more defined by his grace and his mercy and his power to restore than by your brokenness. And so I don't know where you're at tonight, but I believe this, that Jesus wants to go to that place with you. And so redefine it that the next time your synapses fire to go there, you're reminded of the goodness and grace and the greatness of Jesus. Have you let him come to that place? That place of shame? And redefine it? I've sat with people in some very dark situations. And told them Jesus can redefine that place. And make new wine flow there. Let me give you one more observation as I start to wrap up. This is Jesus' sign. He did the sign, right? This is his glory that was revealed. However, how did he do it? He did it by using other people. He told some people to go get some jars to fill them up with water. And and I don't know if you know this, but they didn't like go turn on the faucet. They had to go out to the well, carry the heavy stone jars, pull up the water. It took some time. It took some work. It took some labor. The whole time we're there thinking, we're out of wine, not out of water. What are we doing this for? This is silly. And in the midst of it, Jesus shows his glory. Here's my thought. What if Jesus wants to use you to turn water into wine? Will you be obedient to what he would want you to do? I mean, what if he wants to use you this week to turn some water into wine by, to bring restoration and redemption and hope and salvation even? I don't know what it would look like. Maybe it looks like just simply listening to somebody whose heart is broken and heavy. And as you listen to them and you speak life and hope and you pray for them, that something begins to turn in their heart. And as that starts to turn, they start to have hope. And now water starts to turn into wine. It could look like 
taking a young Christian under your, your wing and, and you start to invest in, in their life and teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And as they do that, water starts to turn to wine. Or it could be that you're in, in, a, in your dorm and a conversation happens and you realize somebody could use prayer and you say, hey, could I pray for you? And maybe like Kayla, you actually pray right there, right? And, 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 and as, you, as you start to pray, Water starts to turn to wine in their lives. Or maybe it's a conversation that Jesus opens a door for you to share the truth about him, about how he can bring restoration and redemption and renewal and make all things new. And that as you do that, water starts to turn to wine in their lives. Or maybe he causes you to give money to someone in need and that is exactly what they needed. And as you do, water starts to turn to wine. And the list could go on and on. I would propose that Jesus wants to use us to turn water into wine. So as we close, maybe you're here and this Jesus thing is new for you, but you're beholding glory. You're seeing the glory that they saw in Cana of Galilee. And you're like, I don't know, how, what do I do? How do I respond? Well, um, I heard Tim Keller say this years ago, and so I'll just uh, share what he shared. He said, first, like they at the party, admit that you're empty. <laughs> it's like, I'm empty. I, don't, I just come to you in my shame. I don't, I, I don't have anything to offer. And then secondly, he says this, put your trust in him like the disciples did. Say, okay, Jesus, I see your glory. I'm empty, but I'm gonna put my trust in you. And then, like the groom, take the credit for what he does. Like, that's the gospel. It's like, you get his righteousness, he takes your junk, pays the price for that, gives you his righteousness, and you get the credit for what he does. And so tonight, that could happen. See, Christianity is not about you climbing the ladder to God. It's about a God who comes down the ladder to you in Christ. Focus in on me, please, just for a second. It's about a God who comes down the ladder to you in Christ and he wants to bring restoration. He wants to reconcile you with your heavenly father. He wants to restore you to who God intended you to be. He wants to redeem the the broken and dark places of your life. He wants to turn water into wine. Will you stand with me? This passage we've looked at tonight, pun intended, is vintage Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've never followed him. I'll just say this, say you're empty, see his glory, put your trust in him and celebrate his grace. Perhaps you're here and you're in a place of shame. And there's things that you carry. Tonight, I want you to know that Jesus wants to come to that place and so redefine it that any time the enemy would try to bring you back to that place, it would just remind you of God's grace and his mercy 
and his healing. I believe he can do that. Maybe a journey to get there. fact the picture I see is maybe that place is dark desolate there's destruction and I just picture Jesus planting his cross in the middle of it and when he does it starts to turn into a place of life and it's lush and new wine begins to flow in that area So if that's you tonight, I want to encourage you as we respond with this song to say, Jesus, would you turn this place of shame into a place of your grace and your healing? And then finally, he wants to use you, yes, you, to turn water into wine. Will you be obedient to whatever he says? And I think this week, you're probably going to get an impulse to do something. I don't even, that doesn't make sense. Well, it didn't make sense to the disciples either. So let's close by singing this song together. Wine was a symbol of God's kingdom, salvation, reconciliation, restoration, renewal. Jesus came and turned water into wine. Lord, I pray for these precious students. I pray that tonight for those who are asking you to come to their place of shame and turn it into a place of celebration, that you would redefine that place by your grace and your mercy and your healing power. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are brand new to to Jesus. I pray that they would behold your glory, place their trust in you, and begin to merge their life with you. And Lord, I pray for each of us here that you would use us to propagate your redemption your salvation and your restoration on these grounds and around this world. Use us to turn water into wine. In Jesus' name, amen. Now for the benediction tonight, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.